Back to my story. I'm out of medical school, I'm out of residency, I'm doing surgeries. And I operate on a woman who has a giant aneurysm, a big, an aneurysm is like if your snake, if your garden hose is out in the sun, it has a big balloon, or if a snake swallows a rabbit, it has a big ballooning in the center of it. So to fix that, it was a very complex operation. Today it's simpler. We've got some devices that can fix that a little easier, but in those days I had to do an 11-hour bypass operation, a very complex high-tech surgery, which went well. And the second part of the surgery was actually closing off the aneurysm. It went well, but later on she developed a blood clot and she died. So 14 hours or more into this surgery, and I have a dead patient. It was really one of my first big failures. I had, up until that point, anything I put my hands to, I was able to do. And I was looking forward to that always being the case. But I wasn't the healer. I was the technician, and God is the healer. And I, I never even asked her if she was ready to die. It wasn't even part of my plan or anything I would have thought of. Well, as it would happen, something else happened that was also difficult that same season. I was dating a woman. Well, I wasn't, I wouldn't have said that because I, I didn't want her to know that I really liked her. You see, everything I learned about relationships, I learned from James Bond. I watched James Bond with my dad and there was no real how to treat anybody. So here it was. I had a high-tech dangerous job, so I had that. But that thing about him being able to treat people poorly and having them love him even more, I couldn't get that to work. So this woman, would you know, went off and found another doctor who wasn't nearly as talented as I was. And I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that would ever happen. I thought, well, if I'm the best, everyone's going to want me. Not if you don't treat them well. So it was in that season. Well, what did... What happens when you sort of have two failures like that in the social arena and your work? But what do surgeons do when there's a problem? Well, we blame other people. It's the nurse's fault, the anesthesiologist's fault, certainly not my fault. Nothing is my fault. I'm the surgeon. So I had to find someone to blame, and I blamed my father. It was his fault. He didn't teach me anything about relationships. And he's the one that said, if I was the best, I would be happy. If I was the best, I would be happy. Well, here I was, arguably the best in my field, certainly in my area, and I wasn't happy. So I was angry with him. I wrote him some letters, never responded. I think many of our parents don't have the emotional resources 
to be able to handle any kind of accusation about their parenting not being good enough, any mistakes that they made. But him not responding just made me angrier. You know, at this point, I realized that my father couldn't give me what he didn't have. I didn't realize it at the time, but now I, I realize he grew up during, during wartime. He, he was raised during wartime. There's no emotional resources for the kids. You're just trying to survive. So survival was what he got. Just He didn't get love or parenting or encouragement. It's just easier to criticize the kids. It's, just e- it's so easy to find what they're doing wrong. And that's what he got, and that's what he did. I had a poor relationship with my dad growing up. It was a, it was a tough, tough time. When I became a physician, things seemed to be wonderful. So that sort of sets it up for a performance-based love. If you're doing well and yeah, then you're okay. I remember about that time calling my mother on the phone, complaining about my father. He didn't really encourage me, very critical. You know, I don't know anything about relationships. We just watched James Bond. I mean, what, what kind of fathering is that? And she said something I'll never forget. She said, David, you need to forgive your father because you've hurt people and you need to be forgiven. Well, I was not expecting that. That's certainly not why I called her. I was not looking for truth. I really just wanted some sympathy. So I was remarking how we love to talk negativity, to get sympathy. We exchange it for the power of our words. But I hung up the phone that night. I said, forgive. Forgive? He should, what's to forgive? He should be asking me for forgiveness. I've got the life that's a mess. But that second part about me hurting other people and needing to be forgiven, well, that was true. I'd hurt this woman and probably a number of other people. Why? Well, that's just the way it works in life. You see, someone hurts us or offends us or sins against us, whatever it is, and then we well justified, we'll do it to other people. And we won't even see it. We're totally blind to it. You remember King David when the prophet Nathan comes to him, tells him a story about this little lamb that a, a rich man took away. Oh, that man should die, he said. In Nathan's words, you're the man. Totally blind to it. Totally blind. We are totally blind. 
when someone has offended us, the things that we do, we essentially become a victim. There are many definitions of victim today, and one of them that I will use is someone who uses the sin against them to justify their own sin. Someone who uses the sin against them, the injustice against them, to justify their own sin. Can't see it. Play the victim. So I hung up the phone. I said, okay, God, I'm going to forgive my father. But I need to be reparented. I, I, and I need forgiveness. And it was at that juncture that a lot of things in my life began to change. There's something that happens when we forgive. First of all, God comes very close to someone who forgives. See, resentment and bitterness actually is energy. A lot of people, they don't know what they do if they forgive. They couldn't get out of bed. It gets them out of bed because they've been so hurt. Oh, but it steals the joy from your life. It's like someone hooking into your battery and just draining it all out. So much fatigue, I think so much illness. I believe the number one thing that I would say spiritually that affects healing is resentment and bitterness. More people have more illnesses. I mean, we think, what, 80% of illnesses have a stress-related component, an emotional, psychological, spiritual, relational component to it. It's not just pure physics and chemistry, pure genetics. There's an overlay. And of that 80%, a lot of it is going to be relational, bitterness against someone, against yourself, against God. If you can... Tune up those three relationships. Your health automatically will improve. I can't say you will be totally healed, but I can guarantee you, if you can get those relationships tuned up, you will, you will be better than you are now. Because that's the way we're designed. We're designed to live with shalom, with peace, with others, with God, and with ourselves. So I started the forgiveness process, and I want to make that clear. Forgiveness very rarely is a one-time deal, especially for deep wounds, deep relationships, tough hurts, years, abuses, parental relationships, kids, divorces. It's rarely is just going to be one time. But I started the process that night when I hung up the phone. And you got to start. you got to start it. You can start with an act of your will, just saying, I will forgive. But ultimately, we want to move into a heart forgiveness. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 about the man who was forgiven much and then goes out and chokes his neighbor for a lesser debt. He says he was handed over to the torturers, the tormentors, And Jesus says, 
so it will be with you unless you forgive from your heart. Resentment is a torment. I had to keep doing bigger surgeries. I had to keep more, bigger, better, faster, always on the phone, always with the TV, always with the music. I'm not like that anymore. I love silence. I love quiet. I take a Sabbath. Shut all the electronics off. Well, Jesus says in John chapter 14, in verse 18, something very interesting. It seems to come out of nowhere. He says, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, he's talking to his disciples. But we know they weren't orphans. I mean, James and John, sons of Zebedee, clearly not orphans. In fact, their mother's going to come to Jesus and say, hey, can you get thrones on either side of you? Right? He's got, they're clearly not orphans. I won't leave you as orphans. Well, I would never have thought that that would have applied to me. But let's talk just a minute about orphanness. What are some characteristics of orphans? Ambitious. They got to be ambitious. How are orphans with their anxiety? Well, they got no father. They got no inheritance. They, they, they got to keep scratching, clawing, looking around, get something, get your elbows up, eat it fast. How fast do you eat? How do orphans sleep at night? One eye open. How are they with trusting people? Show me the money. Show me the money. Well, Jesus comes and says, well, without faith. He's talking about where's your faith? Where are your faith? You can't be an orphan and have faith. The two are really mutually exclusive. Orphans don't have faith. Sons have faith. Daughters can have faith. People with an inheritance can have faith. How are you with your orphan activities? So I grew up as an orphan. It was early on, I mean, I remember pretty clearly about 11, I was, I'm on my own, I said. I'm on my own. And when we make that orphan decision, it's sort of a vow. The enemy loves it when we make those because it sends us in a direction because we break the fellowship with our earthly father or mother, whichever was worse, and typically, your brain assigns whichever parent is worse, assigns that template to God. That's what you think of God. Whichever parent was the worst, that's, that's what you think of God, unless you've done a lot of work to unwind it. So most people say, oh, I know what God's like. No, you don't. 
you think you know what God's like, but you're laying over a template that you have from your earthly parents. Critical, angry, legalistic, or libertine, whichever. Caring about their own stuff. Not much time for you, whatever it was. My father, if I look at him, raised during wartime, orphans, all of them, survival. Does life feel like survival to you? If it does, you need to think about, do I act like an orphan? If you do, I want to try to change that this weekend. That's, it's not a good way to, it's not good for your physical health. It's not good for your relationships. It's not good for your relationship with God. And specifically, Jesus mentions, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you that way. I can see all of the disciples scratching and clawing. In fact, even getting their mother to ask if they can get moved up in the ranks. Trying to get everyone back so I can get the top spot, not believing there's enough to go around. Is God a God of scarcity to you or a God of abundance? In the orphan's mind, it's a God of scarcity. And you better make sure you don't make any mistakes because if you do, it's not going to come around again. How many times I hear even Christian people saying, Look, this opportunity is not going to come back again. What is that? That's a lie. I have to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Do not speak those words. That is an orphan speaking. And how many marriages do we see that someone got married because they didn't think that opportunity would come around again and they married someone who didn't have a belief that, like they did. They, they didn't have a faith in God that they did. But they couldn't trust God that someone that matched their faith would, God would bring to them. I'm just saying, I'm sure there's some singles here. I was single for a long time. I can tell you, if you're single, every year, it takes more faith to believe it could happen to you this year. If your faith is not growing, if your worship is not upgraded, if your praise is not increasing, you're going backwards and you're going to get bitter and you're going to be angry with God and you're going to start making poor choices, becoming angry with yourself and just eating whatever you, you know, not caring, not exercising, not keeping your temple in good shape. And you're going to start being bitter with God that he has let you down. And the one thing I had to keep saying is, if I never marry and I get to heaven, God is not going to apologize to me, saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I just couldn't find anyone for you. <laughs> I think he's going to say, did you get any of the other blessings I sent? What blessings? No, I was waiting for the woman. What are you talking about? What blessings? I didn't see anything. You didn't see anything. No! We have to keep our hope, our imagination, our thoughts, and our speech. It can happen this year. 
can happen next year, but it certainly can happen this year. How is your hope doing? Hope is the biblical word for imagination. Hope is the Bible's word for imagination. Faith, hope, love. Most of us don't even know what hope means. Hope is imagination. How is your imagination about your relationships? Whether you're single, whether you're married, divorced, wherever you are, grandparents, everyone has a relationship that they would like better, would like healing in it. Keeping your hope high, keeping your prayers going, but drawing good boundaries and staying true to yourself and taking good care of the temple. It honors God when you take care of your physical body. 